Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. Good evening, everyone. It's really good to see you. Um, so we'll begin with the student entering ceremony for Nyoen, who sat Tangario uh, on Saturday. Um, and so if you could begin, Yohan, you have your mala. So if you could hold your mala in your hands, and then if you have your, your, um, oh, I'm sorry. So first you should offer, if you have incense, you should offer incense. I'm going to offer a bead instead. And now you should hold your mala, and then you would incense it, or you would offer it, you know, three times, doing three circles clockwise over your incense bowl. Now you can put it on, and you will do three bows to your seat. And I, we, we, we did a student entering ceremony for James recently, so I won't go through the whole explanation. But briefly, you are doing three bows to your seat, your spiritual home. And on the third bow, if you could just pause for a moment and then do the third bow, on the third bow, we will all bow to her. And in your mind, if you could briefly just wish Nguyen what you would like for her on her path, and on this increased commitment that she's making to it. Okay? So you can do your vows. Okay, Noon, so if you could take your seat. And if you could gash All right. So, Nguyen, 
May you be clear in the face of your own and the world's confusion. May you be kind, especially, especially when it is difficult. May you be and stay awake when exhaustion or desire or despair tempt you to go back to sleep. May you regard all beings with love, and if you can't, with respect. And if you can't, with kindness. And if you can't, with care. And if you can, with all of these, because they deserve it just as you do. And may you let bodhicitta, your aspiration to be free for your sake and for the sake of everyone, to be the ground of all of the work that we'll be doing together, especially the two of us. Congratulations. And I think a good thing to remember when we participate in one of these student entering ceremonies is that hopefully, ideally, at every moment we're entering as a student. In every moment that we meet our lives, as you were just sharing in your Dharma glimpse, Nyoen, that what we want is to see more, that what we want is to be a little freer, is to be a little kinder, or a lot, if we can. And that we're always coming to our lives, to really to every moment of our lives, with that sense of, of humility and wonder, of really wanting to learn. I, I have been working on the four bodhisattva vows with this young man that I've been teaching since he was three, he's now 14, and his mother. And what we've been doing is we've been taking the vows, the wording that we know, which is, you know, large and a little abstract, and we've been making it very short, very simple, very grounded, you know, that a 14-year-old that could wrap their head around. And the, the, the third um, vow, to master all dharmas, you know, so the dharmas are boundless, I vow to master them. Together, we um, rendered it as, I vow to learn from everything, essentially. So that can be our, our guiding light. I vow to learn from everything. So, congratulations again, Yohan. It's been a long time coming, and at the same time, it's exactly the right time. So. Here is an amazement. Once I was 20 years old, and in every motion of my body, there was a delicious ease. And in every motion of the green earth, there was a hint of paradise. And now I am 60 years old, and it is the same. 
above the modest house and the palace, the same darkness. Above the evil man and the just, the same stars. Above the child who will recover and the child who will not recover, the same energies roll forward from one tragedy to the next and from one foolishness to the next. I bow down. Many years ago, maybe a decade, a decade and a half, I was at the monastery one evening and I'd gone into the women's locker room looking for something, I don't remember what, and I just rushed in and without thinking, I jumped up on the bench that was set up against the, the back wall there and I reached up uh, towards the ledge, the, the window, and I grabbed whatever it was that I was looking for and then as I came down, I felt an amazement. And I thought to myself, one day, I'm not going to be able to jump up like this, so unthinkingly. I won't be able to jump up at all. But now I can. And I felt in that moment both sad and gladdened. You know, I felt sad because it was true. One day my body would not respond like I wanted it to. And I had relied on it for so long and so enthusiastically that in that moment I felt very keenly that future loss. But I was also glad because I could still jump. I could reach, you know, without fear, without any concern that any part of me might not work the way that it needed to. And then I thought I can do so many things, right? I can run, I can bend and stand back up, I can carry a fair load, and all of it felt easy. And so I thought, as Mary Oliver does in this poem, Early Riser, how amazing it was that my body worked so well and so consistently. You know, despite the many little illnesses and injuries I often had, it worked perfectly. And then I thought, just like the earth, like the beautiful piece of ground that I called home in those days, and that also held me and held those I loved perfectly. And of course, still does. The earth hold us perfectly. And they still do, our bodies, carry us forward. Maybe a little more slowly, maybe not so surely, not so smoothly, but still, here we are, all of us. And that is an amazement, or it should be, if we're looking close, if we're living wakefully. But then, what of the body in pain, we could say? What of the, the sluggish mind that won't settle, 
I won't stay on any one thing for more than a couple of seconds at a time. And what of, as the news tell us, and as our own experience tells us, what of the heating earth and the drying rivers, all the various nooks and crannies of the planet that are now filled like tiny bits of plastic, it's so tiny that we can't see it, and yet roughly every day we consume about, uh, every week, I'm sorry, we consume about a credit card's worth. We eat it, we breathe it, we drink it. That's four credit cards a month in our bodies, and we have no idea yet what this is doing to us. I mean, I can't imagine that's anything good, right? So what of all of that plastic? What are the fires and the earthquakes and the floods and the droughts and the hot spells? What of the body of the earth that seems to be in the middle of a long burnout? Because it is a literal burnout, isn't it? that we find ourselves in. So this is the, the writer Catherine May in her book Enchantment. Burnout comes when you spend too long ignoring your own needs. It is an incremental sickening that builds from exhaustion upon exhaustion, overwhelm upon overwhelm. And she seems to be stating the obvious. But you know, that term, overwhelm, comes from a, a mid-14th century word, overwhelming, which means to turn upside down, to overthrow, to knock over. And then later, it takes on the connotation of being completely submerged, as if by a wave. And who hasn't felt that at some point in their lives? I was telling someone, in fact, earlier in the week, that I used to get very easily overwhelmed when I lived at the monastery, which, you know, I think says something either about my capacity or about the amount of work that we had, or both, because I always had more work than time to do it in. There was more company than solitude, more conversation than silence that I needed, I felt I needed for my well-being. And so these were just the circumstances. But in my desperation, I would often pile on more fuel on the fire. You know, I'd come up with more things to fret about to be burdened by. Just as I was telling the story of that student who, who stepped into a puddle, she was waiting for her husband in the rain, he's not coming, he's not coming, so she steps into a puddle out of spite, she's like, if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to do it right. <laughs> and it was like that for me. If I'm going to suffer, let me just pile it on and really 
But I mean, let me make it count. And so my partner at the time made a drawing for me with the phrase, no pile. Inside that prohibition sign, you know, the red circle with a diagonal across it. And she put it on my desk so that every time I started to overwhelm myself, I'd be reminded that a good deal of it I was creating and that I could stop. Just like suffering. You know, the word stress, another etymological tidbit, it didn't take on the meaning of psychological distress until 1955. Before it was always used in the physical sense, right? The physical strain on a material object. Halfway through the 20th century, the word did start to mean that, that psychological duress, if you will. And then it took off. Because if you look at the chart of its use, it looks like this. And it's just going and going, peaking right now. Which I think is telling, because our language, of course, reflects and creates our experience. I have always felt that that is why Buddhism is so insistent, so careful with language, because it reflects and creates our experience. And so burnout comes from ever-growing stress, right? the strain that we place or that is placed on us. Exhaustion upon exhaustion, Overwhelm upon overwhelm. And Tanisaru Bhikkhu, whom I've quoted in the past, that Theravada monk, he uses, and translator of the sutras, commentator, translates dukkha as stress instead of suffering. And he says the reason he does this is because it, it, it has the more subtle levels. Right? Suffering feels also all-encompassing, and that isn't always our experience. And so he uses stress. But then he says, but that is sometimes a little bit too light for the more blatant and overwhelming forms that dukkha can take. And so as a, as a solution, he often uses both, stress and suffering. And so very briefly, let me just review the three types of suffering that Buddhism identifies. The suffering of suffering, dukkha, dukkata. And this is the suffering that just comes from being born, from being alive. The pain of birth, of old age, of sickness, and death. And the Buddha said that this is that which is painful when arising, painful when remaining, and pleasant when it fades. Right? All of our 
our pains, physical, let's say just physical. They're painful when they're there, when they appear. They're painful when they stay, but it's good. We want them to go away. This is the suffering of suffering. Then there is the suffering of change, viparinama dukkata, the suffering that comes from impermanence. That which is pleasant when it arises, pleasant when it's there, but painful when it fades. All of the good things of our lives that do not last. And then there's the all-pervasing suffering, samstara dukkata. And this is that just general anxiety and distress that we feel even in our happiest moments. Because some part of us knows, some part of us senses that we're not really standing on solid ground. And this, the Buddha describes as that which is not apparent when it comes up, we don't really see it, is not apparent when it stays or when it fades. So basically, we're not really aware of it. And still, it is the cause of suffering. Like this is the hardest one to grok. We think, I'm fine, well, things are fine, I'm happy, I'm safe, I have enough food, have a roof over my head, then why do I feel this way? Why can't I rest? And so here we are looking for, and I hope, I sincerely, sincerely hope, finding even moments of true rest, deep rest in our lives exactly as they are. I think all of us have been practicing long enough to understand, at least intellectually, that we can't wait for things to get better, that we can't wait for another time, we can't wait until we figure things out, that this is the time, and we are the ones And that, in fact, we can. We can experience that rest. Some of you may know, Zen Mountain Monastery is hosting um, discussion groups around an environmental initiative um, called the week. I mean, the, the initiative is really the, the, the whole environmental program that the monastery runs, uh, but this particular project, if you will, is called the week. And it's a series of films made by a couple, Belgian and French, ordinary people, who at a certain point realized we can't afford to not look at what is happening with climate change and wanted to do something. 
And so they created these films to be shared and to be discussed. And so I started watching them because I want to share them with you. I would love for us to watch them as a Sangha. And I wanted to just get a sense of what that would entail. And, you know, the reason I want to do this is because I don't think that we can take our bodhisattva vows seriously without engaging some form, some form of work to heal the burnout, the overwhelm that we've put on the earth. And maybe, as you hear me say this, you think, oh, no, I don't want to do this. I'm just getting through my days. I can't take on anything else. This is not what I signed up for. I'm not going to make you, of course. I hope that you will want to participate so that you can know. And then you decide if and how you would like to do something. I mean, I'll have some ideas for us as a group, but of course, every single one of us can, can choose for ourselves. But you know, the, the, the increasing challenge with this is that it is not something else happening somewhere else. This is the this we're living in. And right now, I think most of us here are still fortunate enough to not have been hit by an earthquake, for example, or a fire or a flood. But of course, there's nothing that says that we won't. And in fact, it's likely that we will. And the question is, when? The heat wave, however, that we were all affected by in this summer, we were all affected by. And so there's no place where this isn't happening, where we can just go to be safe and, and not think about it. Because without a planet, everything else that we could talk about, that we could discuss, that we could practice, becomes irrelevant. And also because we know from our practice that what happens inside happens outside. You know, our teachings say as much, but if we slow down and look close, we'll see as much. And although the challenge is large, we are capable of meeting it largely. Every single one of us. And largely, for you, for you, for you, for me, will look different. And that's okay, because we need every little bit of it. So my hope is that every one of us in our own sphere of goodness, in our Buddha field, will, will look, will ask, what can I do? And I think it's really, really important that as we do so, we keep our sense of amazement. But that we don't get lost kind of in the, in the dross of our everyday. That we not let our overwhelm tell us, I can't do this. 
I can do what needs to be done. And so, like Ango that we just did, I, I hope that you will want to do this, as I said, because you want to be in and of your life. And so let me finish watching the films and figure out the logistics of this, you know, how, what is the best way to do this. So I'll make a plan and I'll come back to you. Mircea Eliade was a philosopher and a religious historian. And he um, called a hierophany the embodiment of the sacred in the ordinary. So when we have a moment with a tree, when we have a moment just watching the sunlight sparkling on the water, when we have a moment with a wafer made of flour and water, but experienced, at least by some, as the body of Christ. That is a hierophany. And his point was that there's nothing magical about it, right? That we're not creating anything in that moment. It is that what is always there becomes revealed. It's that through our attitude of reverence, we bring to light what was always there. That's what hierophany means, to bring to light, to reveal the sacred, the holy. That's why Daidoroshi would speak of liturgy as making visible the invisible. It is always there. The sacred is always there, but we just don't see it. And so through ritual, through careful attention, we, we uncover, we reveal the sacredness of the world that we already inhabit. And to me, this is really the best way to work with the problems that we're facing. Or, or maybe this is what we as spiritual practitioners have, can, can best offer, you know, can bring to the table. To remind ourselves, to remind others that this world is sacred, that we're sacred, and that we therefore have a responsibility to care for it in this way. And there's all different levels at which we can look at this, right? So for example, if you choose not to eat meat, to do so, not because it's good for your health or even good for the environment, although it is, but because animals being sacred creatures deserve to have a good life, right? just as you do. At the same time, we have to eat. 
we have to eat, we have to take life to support our own life, as I often say. And so we just look at how. What can I do? What do I want to do? Because if we don't want to, we won't do it. Several of you have expressed to me your genuine desire to study the precepts and to really bring them into your lives. Here it is. This is your chance. It can be abstract. And it can be because someone else tells you to do it, or what is good for you, what's noble, what's quote-unquote right. If it's going to work, it has to be based on your ever-growing understanding of how things are and your place in those things. What they are and why they're so integrally, integrally connected to you and to everyone else. Right, so it's not a sacrifice. And so to me, this is what's exciting about the precepts, right? to bring them to life in your life. And not the Buddha, and not the sutras, and not any amount of study that we do will tell you how to step forward. You have to figure it out. I have to figure it out. And the even nicer thing, the even nicer thing, is that you don't have to do it alone because we have each other. And that is also an amazement. Here is an amazement. Once I was 20 years old and in every motion of my body there was a delicious ease. And in every motion of the green earth, there was a hint of paradise. And now I am 60 years old, and it is the same. Above the modest house and the palace, the same darkness. Above the evil man and the just, the same stars. Above the child who will recover and the child who will not recover, the same energies roll forward from one tragedy to the next, and from one foolishness to the next. We share the same sky, the same darkness, and the same light. And it's because of that fact that this can actually work, that we can work together and turn things around. You know? Because the same energies roll forward from one tragedy to the next, but they also roll through every instance of goodness, every act of kindness, every show of wisdom. And it's not just the same stars are above the evil man and above each one of us. The same stars are inside. The same stars are inside every single thing, every single being. And when we know that, and when we show that, we become a hierophany. 
we become the embodiment of the sacred in the everyday. We become ourselves an amazement. And we bow. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.